This is Unmind with Great Cloud Michael Elliston Roshi. Personal versus communal. Personal versus communal. Nothing personal, monastic or householder, either the true way. Continuing with our discussion of various turning points in living the Zen life, we will examine the Buddhist tradition of leaving home to become a mendicant with its unexamined but intrinsic root question of what exactly we mean by home. The monastic ideal of leaving home is repeatedly praised by Master Dogen in the ordination ceremony known in Japanese as Shuke Tokudo, which translates as something like leaving home, sharing the Dharma. In lay householder practice, we do not literally leave home, of course, other than for the occasional extended retreat or seshin. But we interpret the meaning as deeply significant even to the householder. Our true home turns out to be unrelated to geography or any of the other relative circumstances of existence. We might also question the reality of home leaving in the life of monastics, as Master Dogen mentions regarding monks of his time, see Shobogenzo's Wimonki. He suggests that some cannot really relinquish their attachment to family and all that it entails for the sake of Zen. But it seems a near prerequisite in order to, quote, hear the true Dharma, as he puts it in Dogen's vow, Ehe Koso Hotsukanmo. Other monks who are able to relinquish family and home are not able to let go of their attachment to their body and good health. They are not willing to put their life on the line, which is, after all, understandable. In this same poem, he quotes Chan Master Langya, In this life, save the body, it is the fruit of many lives. I take his point to be that an obsession with living a normal life as the scion of a family lineage at the expense of Zen practice, is ultimately doomed to failure. As a famous analogy has it, family will not accompany you in death. Like other aspects of your life, including health and well-being, they will only go as far as the grave. Aging, sickness, and death, the three major marks of existence, according to Buddhism, cannot be avoided in the long run, and Zen takes the long view. But the third and most difficult level of monastic non-attachment pointed out by Dogen Zenji is clinging to our own ideas and opinions, especially regarding all the above. Even monks who can realize the first two levels have difficulty with this last, unable to relinquish or even to recognize their erroneous worldview. The monk who can do this most difficult thing has the best chance of waking up during this lifetime. Highest level of practice. This brings up an interesting point, a seeming contradiction, 
that Dogen does not go into. Achieving this last bit of letting go of the, quote, ties that bind implies letting go of our viewpoints, including most notably those regarding the prior two levels, foregoing a normal lay life of family and friends, marriage, social status, and so on, and further forsaking our attachment to our own health and ultimately our very life. In other words, if we truly let go of all of our own opinions, this would necessarily include any preconceptions we harbor, such as that the most advanced monk or nun is necessarily detached from family and body. Not necessarily. In Zen, we give up our opinions of all such kinds of attachment. It is, after all, natural to be attached to both the body and our family. The distinction lies in the degree to which we are attached to them. This is the heart of the middle way. A clear example of this principle is found in pain. We experience some pain in meditation, but we do not immediately react, doing something to make it stop right now. We sink into it a bit more than we usually would, going beyond our comfort zone. In doing so, we have an opportunity to truly experience the pain for what it really is. Thus, we may discover that it is not so bad, although even if we thought that the more extreme dictates of practice may turn out to be life-threatening, we should not shrink from it, according to Dogen. Nothing ventured, nothing gained on a scalable spectrum. Unless we are able to set aside our preconception that pain equals bad, we cannot learn from the experience. This principle then applies to all of our aversions to testy circumstances in life. Aversion is simply the flip side of attachment. Master Dogen's assessment of the levels of commitment of various monks ends with the rare case of one who is able to surrender ties to family, health, and life, and, finally, to one's own worldview. This is the highest and truest form of liberation from the random but seemingly determinative causes and conditions of our present human birth. But since the last test entails relinquishment of our personal opinion, of all the above, this should lead to the conclusion that the life of the lay householder is not all that distinct from that of the mendicant monk or nun, at least in any way that really matters in the context of the great matter. It is a case of the well-known distinction without a difference. If the circumstances of one's lifestyle are only that circumstance, then by definition they are not central to living the Zen life. Following on this reasoning, we might propose that the lay person who is able to relinquish all such opinions and, quote, succeed to the wisdom of the Buddhas, see Fukanza Zengi, represents the highest possible level of realization. 
This may explain why it is, in the history of Buddhism and Zen, that such laypersons as Vimalakirti, Emperor Ashoka, Layman Pang, and countless others are so admired. In spite of having their plates full, constrained by domestic and even governmental duties, they were able to gain profound insight into the Dharma without renouncing their ordinary life. Not to mention certain monks who were known to flout the norms of monastic life. Of course, you cannot tell the Zen book by its cover, so it is best to appraise only your own practice and not to judge others from outward appearances. Contemporary Lay Practice Contemporary lay practice in America is surely vastly different from what it was and is in the countries of origin, today as well as in ancient times. My limited understanding suggests that most lay householders practiced dana generosity by supporting the monks and nuns of the local orders with offerings of food and material support, including currency and other forms of fungible goods, such as metals and fabrics. The community was apparently engaged in other interactive ways as well. Young children would be sent to the temples and monasteries for training, which probably amounted to finishing schools, including some study of Buddhism. The early monasteries of the East probably involved into the institutions of higher learning, universities, as they did in the Middle East and in the West, in Europe, for example. But the actual practice of Zen meditation specifically was probably not widespread, even in China and Japan. It was and is primarily the purview of the monastics. Today, however, I think perhaps especially in North and South America, as well as Western Europe, lay practitioners generally equate Zen practice with meditation. Particularly in the USA, we tend to be do-it-yourselfers. We're not satisfied with secondhand information and look to direct experience as having its own value in most everything we do. Thus, Zen training is closely related to apprentice modes of professional training, as in a craft or guild. A novice becomes an apprentice to a master, and eventually a journeyman, finally certified as a master herself. But we must be careful about this idea of becoming a Zen master. We do not master Zen, Zen masters us, but only if we allow it. As Master Dogen reminds us in the Genjo Koan excerpt from Bindawa, meaning a talk about the way, the first fasticle from his master compilation, Shobo Genzo. When Buddhas are truly Buddhas, they do not necessarily notice that they are Buddhas. If spiritual awakening is simply awakening to reality, it would not necessarily include taking on a new self-identity as a Buddha. 
It might, however, include seeing oneself as well as others in a somewhat different light. Quote, Your body and mind, as well as the body and mind of others, drop away, as Dogen assures us in the same teaching. Living the Zen life today. While we may admire and hope to emulate the life of a monk or nun, I believe we in America do not have enough grounding in the reality of that choice, nor in the cultures of the countries of origin in which Buddhism and Zen originally arose. The choices we have today in terms of maintaining Zen practice in the midst of life are surely very different from those of ancient India, for example. Joining the order meant leaving behind the conventional trappings of society, including family name and caste position, wealth, and so on, though some of Buddha's top disciples seem to have been his blood relatives. The original order at first included men only, but even during Buddha's lifetime, it expanded to include women. From what I have gathered, any adult from any level of the caste system of the time could join, as long as they were willing to forego the privilege and providence of their upbringing. This, it seems to me, had to do with renouncing the self in the conventional sense. This tradition is what Master Dogen, some 1300 years later, referred to as leaving home in laudatory language. Today, we join the community or Sangha and can even become ordained as a priest without literally leaving home in the obvious outer sense of the phrase. However, when we undergo Shuke Tokudo, lay ordination as a novice priest, the implication is that we leave our ostensible home in order to find our true home in universal homelessness. Our true home, homelessness. This homelessness is considered the original or natural way of being and has nothing to do with where we were born or where we currently dwell in the geographic sense. Circumstances of our birth, as well as our growing up, our livelihood, and our eventual death are just that, circumstantial. They are not central to our being, though they may play an inordinate role in shaping our worldview, and indeed, whether or not we are ever even exposed to the Dharma. This human birth is considered rare in Buddhism, though with nine billion and counting, when I originally wrote this it was seven billion, it may appear to be so common as to threaten the very survival of the species. By comparison to other life forms, such as insects, we are not even close to predominance on the planet as measured in biomass. But the disproportionate effect that we as human beings have on the environment amounts to a crisis. We may want to broaden our scope from considerations of our own personal mortality to embrace the possibility of extinction 
of the entire species. There is no greater form of homelessness than to become extinct. Atlanta Soto Zen Center and Silent Thunder Order as collaborative community. Each month during our second Sunday Sangha lunch and dialogue at Atlanta Soto Zen Center, we discuss issues of how we as individuals can join in the efforts of promoting true community without compromising our own personal lives as householders and lay Zen people. Matsuoka Roshi predicted, and I concur, that the rebirth of Zen would be seen in America and that its propagation would be primarily in the form of lay householder practice. He would often remark that, quote, Zen is always contemporary. That is, we don't have to try too hard to make it contemporary. We have just passed the sixth year anniversary of what might be considered one of the all-time great failures of community that scene in Charlottesville, Virginia. It recalled to mind the greatest international example of decline of community in Germany, Italy, and later Japan, which led to World War II. But Charlottesville is only a blip on the screen of the ongoing series of catastrophes, both natural and human, that have plagued the human community since the beginning of recorded history, the latest being the hell on earth that is Ukraine, courtesy of the Putin regime in Russia. Any serious student of history is not at all surprised by the daily atrocities that we witness on the news. This is human nature in full flower. It is why we aspire to Buddha nature instead. Now we are in the throes of adolescence in the growth of the Zen community in America. That there is a lot of confusion wreaked upon this process is to be expected, owing both to quirks of contemporary Western society and the persistence of myths surrounding the origins of Zen practice in the seminal communities in India, China, Korea, Japan, and the Far East. Most of the confusion arises, I think, from the supposed contrast and apparent contradictions between traditional monastic and contemporary lay householder lifestyles. So, as if we need one more thing to worry about, we do not want to become attached to the propagation of Zen as yet another preconceived project in its own right. We are privileged to be exposed to the Dharma in the most humble sense of the term, and not merely by dint of circumstances of our birth, the source of most social privilege. Let us not miss this opportunity to join with the Zen community and to serve its members in true collaboration. It is well within our enlightened self-interest to do so. Unmind is a production of the Atlanta Soto Zen Center in Atlanta, Georgia, and the Silent Thunder Order. Find us on the web at ASZC.org.
You can support these teachings by PayPal to donate at storder.org. Gashou.